Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. I am honored to be here. I'll be honest with you, I'm a little intimidated to be here. Number one, well, this is really number two, but I'll say it first. Uh, you have Anthony George coming tomorrow night. And I told Andy I wouldn't be his friend anymore if he'd have put me after Anthony George. If you have never heard Anthony George preach, you need to be here tomorrow night. You need to bring everybody you can with you. He will absolutely preach the walls down in this place. And uh, he is currently one of my favorite preachers in all of the land. And I had the privilege of leading a um, George Baptist Convention preaching conference this year down in Savannah. And I had some guys lined up to preach. And one of the guys I had lined up to preach was Dr. Stanley. And I was so excited to have Dr. Stanley come. I figured pastors in Georgia hadn't had a chance to hear him live in a long time. And we're getting closer to it. And we weren't far out from the event. And I got a phone call from Dr. Stanley uh, that he just wasn't going to be able to make it. And um, in that phone call, I said, well, Dr. Stanley, what would you suggest I do? I'm not Charles Stanley. Nobody else is Charles Stanley. I can't really replace you. And we talked, and I said, well, do you think Anthony would be interested in coming? And Dr. Stanley's immediate words were this. This is coming from Charles Stanley. He said, oh, Stephen, there's not a better preacher to preach to the pastors in the state of Georgia than Anthony George. And I'm telling you, there's not a better preacher outside of your own to preach to you tomorrow night than Anthony George. So Anthony's coming tomorrow night. I'm intimidated by that. And then your pastor. What I knew about Andy when I was at Truett, was I learned very quickly that Andy was a great preacher. Now, we both would probably tell you that back then when we were in college, we weren't near as good of a preacher, near as good of preachers as we thought we were. If Andy's ever gone back and listened to his sermons like I have some of mine, but Andy was an incredible preacher, probably was the best preacher on our campus. And outside of that, when you think of the qualifications of someone in ministry, and I'm not preaching, Andy, I'm going to get to the text in a minute. I'm not going to keep you here long either. But I just want to share this with your church. When you look at 1 Timothy 3, and it says, If any man aspires to be an overseer, uh, it says this, Be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, uh, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, gentle, peaceable, free from love of money, one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. I struggle with that on a regular basis. Then you go down to verse 7 and he says, Then he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so they will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. My greatest memory of your pastor in college, he could preach, and I remember those sermons. And I probably wrote on that evaluation when Katie called him, who called you because that was probably the only thing I could think of to uh, critique him on was that his phone buzzed. And it was Katie's fault, not his. But my greatest memory... I played baseball when I was at Troop McConnell with Andy and Katie. The baseball team was not the most spiritual bunch on campus. As a matter of fact, it was probably 98% lost, if we're being really honest. Just, for lack of a better word, excuse me, just a lot of hellions is what they were. Um, they liked to do things that you wouldn't want your kids doing. And we had a BSU, Baptist Student Union ministry there, now Baptist Collegiate Ministry, a lot of ministry majors on campus who I love dearly. But I remember how many of them viewed the baseball team and how the baseball team viewed many of them. But then I remember being in a locker room and on buses and in hotel rooms as we traveled. And I remember hearing my teammates talk about Andy Brown. And very quickly, before I even knew Andy well, to hear these lost, beer-drinking, other-things-doing jock 
stud athletes talk about this man sitting on the front row and how much respect they have for him, and how much they loved him, um, how much they appreciated the way he treated them and responded to them. I'll never forget that, Andy. And I don't know if you know that or knew that, but those guys loved you, and I would guess they still do to this day if they saw you. And so you are blessed um, with one of the best young pastors in the state of Georgia. You need to know that. If you don't know that, then you need to ask for God's forgiveness and repent and uh, ask God to get your heart right. And I don't say that with a laugh. I say that seriously. There's no better young preacher of the gospel, leader, and just lover of people than Andy Brown. And his, and his wife is even better than he is. And so you got two for one. And I'm honored, I'm humbled, and I'm a little intimidated to stand behind his pulpit this evening. And I say that with full sincerity. And then he asked, he, this is the other great thing about Andy, he invited me to come preach and he told me what to preach. So I couldn't even pull out a sugar stick. So if you're turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, and we'll begin in verse 18. And you know the story, you know where we're at. Jesus had just had his triumphal entry into the city. He had cleansed the temple, uh, the money changers and all of that. And he's walking down the road, uh, returning to the city uh, with his disciples. And we get to verse 18, and the Bible says this. Now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the incredible privilege that I have to stand behind this pulpit where this man of God stands on a weekly basis. Lord, I pray tonight more than ever before that you would just hide me behind your text. And God, that through my insufficiency, God, your power would speak and God, your text would penetrate hearts and lives in a way that only it can. We love you so much. We praise you. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. This is a unique little story in this Holy Week time as Jesus is making that march towards that cross, making that march towards that brutal symbol of death that became that wonderful symbol of life for us. As Jesus has left the temple, the disciples have seen him in his righteous anger and cast, you know, seen him put out some uh, some discipline there in the temple. And he's walking down the road and he comes to this fig tree and if we just read this story with the fig tree we're very tempted to say so what jesus was hungry he saw a fig tree and he said yo i'm gonna get some figs he walked up to the fig tree there were no figs jesus said i don't like you fig tree die end of story what's the big deal jesus was god right he was god in the flesh he was about to prove to the whole world once and for all he was god he had the power to curse the fig tree if he wanted to curse the fig tree he wanted a fig didn't have a fig that, that's just a little side note story in this incredible plot 
But the reality is, you know, as well as I do, because your pastor teaches this and says this and believes this and practices this, that God's word is inspired, that God's word is is useful, right, for doctrine. It's useful for reproof. It's useful for our lives. It's applicable to us. And we know that nothing written in it is written by chance. And all of it is is applicable to our lives. And so as we dig into this story and we see a lesson learned here, it really is kind of a scary story to read. Because this story is really a picture of appearance versus adherence. If you're taking notes, and I would recommend you do, because if you're like me and not very smart, you have to write things down, otherwise you don't remember them. But it's a great picture of appearance versus true adherence. And really, as you look at that fig tree, as we study the text, we learn that that fig tree is a picture of the people of Israel. It's a picture of the Jews and the judgment that is coming upon them. And there are some obvious things we see, four things that we see, but the first two are just obvious that we see in this picture of this fig tree that I believe we can apply to our lives as we apply the fig tree to the Jews. Now, here's the reality. Here's what I believe and, and what I know uh, and what we know as we read the Scripture in context. We know that we can't take the Jews and replace ourselves there, okay? We can't take what is written for the Jews and assume that we are the new people, uh, you know, the, the new Jewish people. They are God's chosen people, the people of Israel, and uh, what is meant for them is meant for them. But also, we can learn, as Andy and I learned at Truett McConnell, that you can take what is applied to them and you can build this principalizing bridge, this theological bridge over to our time, and we can apply it to our lives. So as we talk about this, recognizing that he's talking about the judgment of the Jews, we can apply it to our lives, and I believe there are some great similarities here that we see in this fig tree. The first thing we see in the fig tree is our advantage. Our advantage. Now, you've got to remember the picture here. Jesus is only a few miles outside the city, right there in the middle of everything happening. The Son of God had just come to the Jewish people 33 years before this. He had been born to the Jewish people as King of kings and Lord of lords. He had performed all sorts of miracles. They had seen the dead come back to life. They had seen the blind made to see. They had seen the lame made to walk. They had seen the leopards heal. They had seen the water turned into wine. Jesus had already done enough to prove that He was the Son of God, right? It was right there in front of all of them to see. They experienced it. Even as he came into town, they cried out, Hosanna, right? They waved those palm branches. They laid them at his feet so his donkey didn't have to touch the ground that he walked on. He was lifted high and exalted on that one day. Yet Jesus knew that just coming down the road, just a few days from now, those same people would put him to death. Those same people who he came to would deny him. Those same people who were shouting Hosanna would shout crucify him. They had every advantage. Every opportunity. To recognize right in their faces. That Jesus was the son of God. See this fig tree was there. This fig tree was growing there by the road. God had provided for it. God had given it nourishment. 
I was reading and some scholars would tell you that it was actually maybe an early bloomer based on the time of Jesus' crucifixion and all of that was happening. This might have been about a month early before the leaves and the figs should have been coming. But if the leaves showed up, the figs should have been there. So it was there. God had provided for it. It had its nutrients. It had produced some some leaves so it looked healthy and had every reason to serve the purpose it was created to serve and that was to provide the fruit to give nourishment to those who came by. Isn't that true of so many of us in the 21st century church in America today? We have every advantage to live lives that are prosperous spiritually. We have every opportunity. We have access to all the information we need. We have churches on every corner. And if we miss a Sunday, we can go back and hear our pastor's message on Monday or Tuesday or whenever uh, whoever puts our messages up finally gets them up. My student guy puts our messages up. And it's amazing. When he preaches, his message always goes up by like 9 o'clock Monday morning. When I preach, it's never on the web till like Thursday afternoon. But we have every advantage, right? We have the freedom to come to church. We have the freedom to worship without fear of any great persecution. We talk about persecution in America. That's silly. How are we persecuted? One day we won't be tax exempt. So what? This past Sunday morning, there were two Egyptian churches. They showed up to worship knowing that they could lose their lives because they were there. Many of them did. Pools of blood covered the floor around where you sit now. Because they showed up to worship Jesus. The American church, we have absolutely no excuse to not follow Jesus, to not trust Jesus, to not share Jesus, to not live the life that Jesus has called us to live, to not give the way Jesus has called us to give, to not serve the way Jesus has called us to serve, to not stand on biblical truth and principles the way Jesus has called us to stand on biblical truth and principles. There's absolutely nothing logical that is stopping us from it, yet for some reason, for some reason, and I'm not saying this about your church, this is about mine, can look across my congregation of a few hundred every Sunday morning and count on a few handfuls how many I believe are actually bearing fruit in their lives on a daily basis. See, our advantage is that this nation was founded to give us the opportunity to learn about Jesus. And we get distracted by everything else around us. Man, we like to judge the Jews. How did they see all of his miracles? How did they see all the things he did? How did they hear his teaching? How did they see the crowds that followed him? How did they see him bring Lazarus back to life? How did they see him make that blind man see? How did they see him do all of these things? How did they hear him expound upon the Old Testament scripture that they had? How did they hear these things and see these things and still crucify Jesus when we do it on a weekly basis? in order for us to get past that, we must recognize we do have an advantage. We do have opportunity the way this fig tree had. See, not only did the tree have the advantage and that it was there, it was God had provided for it. It must have been in some type of fertile ground in order for it to sprout those leaves a little early. We see the advantage that we have. But then number two, we see our appearance. See, in the 21st century church that we live in today, In America, we have all of the advantages and all of the opportunities to grow in our faith. We have access to Bible studies left and right. We have access to worship anytime we want it. 
of some sort. We have access to all of these different things. We get to boss our pastors around and tell them exactly what we want them to do, and they do it, and all of those things. And with that advantage, we have the appearance of fruit-bearing followers of Jesus. What happens in the story? Jesus approaches the tree. He sees the tree, and, and he sees that it has leaves. Well, the fig tree's there. In that part of the world, in that time, in fig trees, when they have leaves, though they could have been an early sprouter, but the leaves should have been an indication of fruit. The leaves wouldn't have grown without the fruit. And so Jesus shows up and he inspects the tree a little bit and it had leaves. What were the leaves? The leaves were the announcement to the world that it was ready to serve its purpose. The leaves were the appearance that that fig tree was doing what God created for it to do. Many times, especially around seasons like this, as followers of Christ, don't we like to live with that appearance? We're actually doing what Christ called us to do. See, that was the problem with the Jews here, right? Who did Jesus always jump on? He didn't jump on the prostitutes. He didn't jump on the tax collectors. He didn't jump on the drunks. Who did he jump on? He jumped on the religious people. He jumped on the Pharisees. He jumped on the Sadducees. He jumped on the people who knew the text. He jumped on the people who knew the law, who studied the law, who immersed themselves in the law, and who walked around shouting how holy and righteous they were, how spiritual they were, who sprouted these leaves to show the world they were fulfilling the purpose God created them to fulfill. One of the saddest things I see in churches, I had the privilege to be around ministry my whole life. Except to Christ at a young age. My dad was a pastor. Still is a pastor. Right down not far from you guys in Monroe, Georgia at this point. Little church, Grace Baptist Church in Monroe. Everywhere my dad's ever pastored. Man, he goes in and it's just exploded. It's crazy. I don't know how he does it. And now he's older and he's gray-headed and he's gained some weight. And yet he still has the energy of a 23-year-old. And I grew up in his house and allowed us to participate in ministry. It was kind of a family thing, and we're trying to use that model in my own life now with my wife and two kids. And then I had the privilege to serve as a student pastor at the age of 19 years old. And even when I took a little bit of a break from doing that and went to school, and I was at Truett, I was playing baseball, but I wasn't a great baseball player. I was just really playing. I looked at Coach Wakes, our head coach there, and I said, Coach, I'll be more used to you in the clubhouse and in the dugout than I will on the field and had a chance to play and it really that was my ministry those guys were my mission field those guys were the guys that I did life with and shared the gospel with and then I've served in churches of all sizes churches that had about 50 on a Sunday morning up to First Baptist Atlanta I was the privilege of being the student pastor there and you know we have 5,000 on a Sunday morning just to come here Dr. Charles Stanley now, pastoring the church I'm at now, with all of that experience in my little young life, and I know many of you have more than I do, the thing that breaks my heart as much as anything else is to see men and women, boys and girls, teenagers, who live their life for the appearance that they give off. We have people in my church today, and their greatest desire is that I think they are really spiritual and holy. Their greatest desire is that I think they are really good people. Their greatest desire is that I think they are owed something because of how good they are. And that they have somehow earned God's favor. 
and they've sprouted these little leaves where from afar you look at it and you see this fig tree that is flourishing and you get excited. And I've been a pastor at my church. I've been at my church for six years, served on staff first, pastoring for two years, two and a half years now. And what I've learned in this third year is that many of those who I saw from afar who looked like that healthy fig tree and they had sprouted that green leaves and they looked like they were producing so much fruit as I got closer and began doing life with them or attempting to do life with them, I began to learn that there was no fruit in their life at all. Can I tell you something that I can say? Your pastor hasn't told me this, but I've been around long enough. There are some of us in this room tonight that came simply for the appearance that you chose to be here. There are some of us in this room tonight that live for that appearance. And guys, I'm not here to beat you up because I want to encourage you in just a moment. But that's what the religious Jews who put Jesus to death did. They appeared to be producing fruit in their lives. We see the advantage they had that we have. We see the appearance they carried out that we carry out. But then we see the absence that they possess. Jesus looked at this fig tree and he saw where it was there on the side of the road. And he saw the green leaves and everything looked good from afar. He heard the prayers, right? He saw the super spiritual worship. He saw the things that we can manufacture in our lives to make us look better than we really are. And then he began getting closer and closer and closer and closer to that fig tree. And as he approached it, he looked for the one thing that proved its usefulness as God's creation and knows no fruit there. There was no fruit. It was empty. And Jesus responds to there being no fruit. He could have done many things, right? He was the Son of God. He could have looked at the tree and He could have said, hey, give me a piece of fruit and it could have went, boop, big. He could have said, give me an apple and it could have said, apple. Because He was Jesus, right? He could have tried to search for another fig tree. He could have done many, many things. He could have said, oh, man, they just don't have any yet. But what the Bible says that Jesus did as one of the most incredible object lessons ever seen on the history of the earth, right? Jesus with his disciples sitting there watching, looked at the fig tree and said, you shall no longer produce any fruit. And at once the fig tree died. Now we know immediately there could mean different things, right? Because if you read over in Mark, Mark gives the picture of it might have been a little bit later in the day or the next day. But right there in that moment, in that one section of time, Jesus said, you will no longer produce fruit, and the fig tree died. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of this. Write this down. For those who claim to be followers of Jesus, for those who shout how much we love Jesus and how awesome our walk with Him is, if there is no fruit in your life, you are walking a line risking the judgment of God. Jesus demonstrated his judgment upon those who had every reason to flourish and produce fruit. Upon those who in the midst of having every advantage and every opportunity to flourish and produce fruit. And to know what God was calling them to. And to know the gospel and the truth of God's word. Jesus was passing judgment here on those who had that advantage. And also shouted out to the world. Made this proclamation. I am holy. I am righteous. I am God. 
godly. I am good. I am better than the rest. I deserve something. Jesus made this incredible judgment on those who lived that life, yet didn't produce any fruit, didn't produce any love, didn't produce any righteousness, didn't produce any peace, didn't produce any other reproduction of followers of Jesus. He made this judgment and he said this, I judge you. You're not mine. His judgment was coming to the Jews. See, we see the things that are just observations here. The tree was obviously in a place it could have flourished and it had beautiful green leaves. It looked good to the world. It had no fruit. Had no fruit. Had nothing to show for what God had provided it. And then we see verses 21 and 22. Two things. Number one, we see why it didn't have fruit. And we see how we can have fruit. Because number four, we see this. We see our advantage. We see our appearance. We see our absence. And then number four, we see that everything we do is relying upon his ability. The disciples were amazed and asked Jesus, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus really didn't say anything else about the fig tree. (laughs) You know, I would have wanted him to tell me, well, I had this powder in my hand. I dropped on it. Or at least say, I'm the son of God. I made it happen. But he didn't say that at all. He said, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. That fig tree was a picture of the Jewish people, right? It was a picture of those same Jews that cried Hosanna that would eventually crucify him, would ask for a criminal to be released so that Jesus died that brutal death on a cross. The fig tree was a picture of those disobedient people chosen by God. Those people whose prophets spoke of Jesus' coming and foretold all that would happen in his life and yet still didn't quite get it. Why was it that they didn't produce any fruit? Why was it that judgment would come upon them? Jesus says, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt. See, here Jesus gives this great contrast The tree that withered because it didn't produce fruit. The tree that faced judgment because there was nothing in its life showing that it was fulfilling the purpose that God had called it to. He contrasts that with the power that's available to those who follow Jesus. He says, if you have faith, do not doubt. You will not only do what was done to the fig tree as Jesus showed his power in killing the fig tree. But if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen in all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now many times, some of our prosperity preacher friends read those two verses. and You have faith. And they flip back a little bit and they use that faith the size of a mustard seed. And you say, move mountain, the mountain will move. You say, go away cancer, the cancer will go away. You say, come to me money, the money will come. And whatever you ask in my name, in prayer, and you believe, you will receive. You ask for that jet and you believe, you'll receive it, right? You ask for that mansion and you believe, you will receive it, right? That's not what Jesus is saying at all. You see, these two statements in verses 21 and 22 are said, it's presupposed here that the faith he is speaking of is centered in God's will. 
And when he says, if all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive, all things there are all things that result in the glory of God. That's not some name it, claim it garbage. I wish I could preach some prosperity, name it, claim it gospel. I wish I could so badly. You know how much fun that would be to just get up every Sunday morning and tell everybody how awesome they are and tell them if they just believe God's going to make them great and God's going to make them famous and God's going to make them rich. And then once they get rich or even before they get rich, they can give all their money to me and that'll help them get rich quicker if they make me rich quicker. Man, that would be great. But I can't preach that. Because what I can preach is God's Word. And what God's Word says is this, that there's none righteous, no, not one. What God's Word says is that my very best, the most righteous that I can be is as filthy rags to a holy God. And what God's Word says is that this world is broken because of all of that sin, because all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, uh, our world is broken. And what God's Word says is this, that I didn't give my life to Christ so that I could have glory on this earth. No, God drew me to Himself and He saved me from my sin so that I could glorify him and one day I could spend an eternity with him in this place called heaven, right? And so I live my life not saying if I ask for the things I want, I will receive them because I have faith. No, I live my life saying this, God, I just want to glorify you. God, I just want to point others to you. God, I just want to produce fruit in my life. God, I want there to be love. I want there to be a faith. I want there to be patience. I want there to be kindness, gentleness. I want there to be these things that, God, you desire to be traits of me. And I want to live that out. And, God, I'm asking that you remove any mountains that get in the way of me living my faith out, that you remove any mountains that get in the way of me giving you glory. God, that you would remove that sin. God, that you would remove that person that comes against me. Jesus is talking to the disciples here. Check this out. He knows he's about to be crucified. He knows they're about to be scared to death. They're going to be huddled up in a little room waiting to know what's next. They don't know what's happening. They think their lives are on the line. He knows that big old tough Peter is about to lie. Big old tough Peter is about to deny him. He knows all of these things and he's saying this. If you pray and have faith, those mountains of doubt, those mountains of persecution, those mountains of you feeling like the whole world is against you, that mountain of your desire to be accepted, because that's the greatest desire all of us have when we walk in this place. If you pray and have faith, I will move those mountains so you can glorify me. I know that was a whole lot and it was really fast, but did you get it? Some of you did. The rest of you just stared at me. Those things that stop us from glorifying him. Those are the mountains he'll move. That pride we carry around. He'll move that mountain. That excuse we make. I'm too old to do a lot good for Jesus. He'll move that mountain. My favorite place to preach in Buford, Georgia, besides my pulpit, is Brookdale Senior Living Home. I've learned there's Brookdales all over the place. Well, there's one in Buford, Georgia, and it's my Brookdale. I go in that room, and there's about 20 people in that room, and Half of them are 90 years up. A handful of them don't remember anything I said after I leave. But I love looking at that group of senior adults at the end of their life. And every single time I get to preach to them, I love looking at them and telling them, number one, you are a precious child of the King. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, you are princes and you are princesses. And I love telling them that as long as there is breath in your lungs and as long as your mind is functioning at all, God still has a plan for you and He can still use you and He can still produce fresh new figs from you if you will just put your faith in Him and ask Him to give you the strength to be used by Him. Isn't that exciting? 
says if you have faith, and as a result and as a proof of that faith, you pray. You receive what you need to glorify our Father. Guys, we think our life is tough. I love what your pastor is doing. I love this week. But the cool part about this week is I think back. Many times we think, I know I do sometimes, we think of these characters in the Bible and we kind of deify them. The ones who aren't Jesus, don't we? think of, you know, we go back, we think guys like Abraham, Moses, David, and we think they had like some extra special spirituality that we don't have, and they didn't. We think of these disciples, we think, well, man, they walked next to Jesus. Like, we think they had something we don't have. And the reality is, they didn't. They were messed up dudes. They were sinners. Fishermen, tax collectors. Like, I mean, they weren't the top of society. And I love that on this week, we get to read as my Jesus teaches them and prepares them for what's coming. And even in this barren fig tree, they don't know it yet, but Jesus is preparing them for the reality that the Jews will turn their backs on Him. That what is really in their heart will once and for all be produced for the world to see. And in that same picture of judgment, offers these disciples hope. But if you trust me and you pray, I will give you the strength and the power to not only overcome all of these mountains that are about to come at them. We think mountains are our bank accounts, right? We think mountains are our relationships at our job. We think our mountains are our boss doesn't like us. We think our mountains are, you know, if you're a teenager or whatever, a kid, that, that boy doesn't like me, that girl doesn't like me. We think our mountains are those things. These guys' mountains were about to be that the whole city was after their head. And for these guys, they would eventually get it. Their mountain was that their life was on the line. Jesus said, put your faith in me, pray, and I will give you the power to glorify my name for the world. Andy and I have the many connections he shares. One of the great connections he and I and Dr. George will be preaching to you tomorrow night have is that we... All three had the privilege to serve with Dr. Charles Stanley. And I don't need to tell you any Charles Stanley stories because Andy probably told you plenty, as I do. My senior adults love it. If I ever need a little extra credibility with my senior adults, I just say Charles Stanley. And they think he was my best friend. And I don't tell them differently. I do have his cell phone number, okay? I brag about that. I do boast about having his cell phone number. He probably won't answer it anymore when I call him, but I've got it. I'll never forget when I interviewed with Charles Stanley. I was one of the last student guys to interview with Dr. Stanley. My wife, who suffers from anxiety, had to go to this interview with me. Here I was, 24 years old, and I'm walking into InTouch Ministries. And Wardell, Dr. Stanley's big security guard, who can tell you with his pinky, is standing there at the front desk. And mine and Andy's dear late friend, Bill Bryan, is there with us. And Bill and Wardell walked us up this beautiful staircase into Dr. Stanley's office. Myself and Dr. Stanley... My wife, another man sitting there. And Dr. Stanley began talking. He said, Stephen, I have one more question for you. Sure, Dr. Stanley. He said, what is the most important thing in your life? Well, you could have asked something a little more specific. In my nervous little mind there, I all kinds of things raced through. I thought, it has to do something with Jesus. It has something to do with Jesus. And then I thought, well, okay, yeah, that, you know, my wife's here with me. I, you know, I'm nervous. I don't know what to say. What's the most important thing in my life? And I thought it was deeper than just 
my relationship with Jesus. Because, you know, we would all know that. That's your typical Sunday school answer. So I'm trying to think of something smart to say. And I said something along the lines of, through a cracked voice and, you know, just not making sense, glorifying God or something. I don't know. Dr. Stanley, in all of his grace, so gracious, kind. Stephen, let me help you out. I said, please, sir, tell you what the most important thing is in your life. The most important thing in your life is your personal walk with Jesus. And I thought, well, I'm an idiot. I didn't get the job. That's what I thought. And he looked at me and he said, Stephen, you know how many pastors leave the ministry every year? I said, no, sir, I'm not sure. And he gave me some huge number. And he broke it down to however many hundreds a week. He said, you know why pastors leave the ministry so often? I said, no, sir, I don't. He said, well, they could give you many reasons. Because of infidelity, because of some kind of moral failure, because of burnout. He named all of these different reasons of why he knew guys who left the ministry. He said, you want me to tell you why pastors leave the ministry so often? I said, why? I wanted to hear from the world's pastor why pastors leave the ministry. He said, because somewhere along the line, those pastors forgot about their own personal walk with Jesus. And I watched that man for the next two and a half years. And I've never served with a pastor, and I've served with some great pastors. Never served with a pastor or staff member who was more serious about their walk with Jesus and about their prayer life than Dr. Charles Stanley. Never have. I wish I could tell you today that I am as serious about my prayer life as Dr. Charles Stanley is, but I don't think I am. And my prayer life's been pretty decent lately. And I learned from that conversation this, and this is what he continued to tell me. He says, Stephen, when we get in positions of ministry, many times we become so concerned with results and our appearance, we forget that it's what happens behind closed doors that produces anything. Church, let me encourage you with this. Get over the way people view you. Don't worry about it. Quit trying to please everybody else. Quit trying to look spiritual and holy to the right people. Quit trying to hang on to whatever influence or power you think you have and get behind the door and get on your knees before God and cry out to Him for His power and allow Him to produce fruit in your life. And for some of you today, you need to do that for the first time. Because for some of you today, you're still trying to live in this facade, possibly maybe in this room. You're still trying to live with this appearance that you are right, that you are holy, that you are good with God, that you got it figured out. And the reality is you are broken, you are lost, there is no fruit in your life because there is no life in your life. And the reality is that you are walking on this dangerous line of facing the judgment of God. But the encouragement is this, my Jesus loves you so much in that while you're still a sinner, he became your sin so that you could reflect his righteousness to the world and he's asking you today to simply get on your knees before him lay your heart before him and say jesus change my life jesus forgive me jesus i am broken jesus i know that i am messed up jesus i know that i am sinful jesus i know that i'm deserving of your wrath but i also know that you love me and i am precious to you and i'm so precious to you that you pursued me to the point of death on a cross and today I cry out to you and I say I want you to produce your fruit in me I don't want to build this facade anymore I don't want to build this picture of holiness this picture of righteousness I want to live out your righteousness so I ask you today to save me to change my life some of you need to do that tonight so here's what we're going to do we're going to quietly stand right now with heads bowed and eyes closed Pastor Andy's going to come to the front I'm going to ask if 
whatever musicians are playing, go ahead and come and go ahead and begin to play softly. And as Pastor Andy is in the front with heads bowed and eyes closed, and I don't have your heads bowed and eyes closed because of some magical, mystical reason or because you're more spiritual with your heads bowed or eyes closed or because God can speak to you better. I want your heads bowed and your eyes closed for one reason, and that is so you can focus on your own life and what God has or hasn't done there. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Number one, some of you are living as that fig tree in the reality that you don't have any fruit because there is no life in you. And the reality is, if there is no life in you because of your sin, right now, before you put your faith and trust in Christ, before Jesus saves you from that, before He draws you to Himself and you respond in obedience to Him, You are marked by that sin. And because you are marked by that sin. And because God is just and holy and righteous. He must punish that sin. He must judge it. So if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ. I know sure most of us are church people in here. There's no fruit in your life. There's no hunger for his word. There's no desire to worship. There's no desire to fish for lost souls because you've never actually had an experience with Him. That's you. Today, you need to submit your life to Christ. So how do I do that? Well, you acknowledge you're a sinner. That Christ died for your sin. You ask Him to forgive your sin. You commit your life to Him if His Spirit is drawing you. I would tell you that you don't have to do that right where you are. God doesn't expect you to there's people in this church that would love to talk to you about that and walk you through that. So, you need to give your life to Christ. You need to get out of your seat in just a minute. When I say amen, take Pastor Andy by the hand. Say, Pastor, I need to give my life to Christ. There's never been any fruit in my life. And it's because I am lost. I am like those Pharisees and Sadducees. I have been religious. I have shouted to the rooftops how religious I am. But I don't love people. I, I don't pray. I don't seek God. And I need to get my life to Christ. You need to come take him by the hand and do that. For some of you, you are followers of Jesus, but it's been a while since there's been any fruit in your life. Somehow you've got caught up in the church game of being real spiritual. Maybe tonight you've been reminded that you don't do what it takes behind closed doors to produce fruit. You don't do what it takes behind closed doors to be used by God the way he, was, he created you to be used. So today, you just need to come make this an altar for you and say, God, don't let me be the barren fig tree. God, I've seen you work. God, I hear your word. I get to worship with your people. Produce fruit in my life. Lord, we thank you for this day. Pray we'd be obedient to you over the next few moments. In Jesus' precious holy name we pray. Amen. We pray God will use this message for his glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.